Well, at the end of last week's service, I announced that um, not this week, but next week, uh, we'll be having a fellowship meal after church to discuss how we can, as a body, come together uh, for the advancement of the gospel. But again, as I mentioned last week, I thought that before we did that, um, it'd be good if I came and kind of delivered a couple of messages to you that I think will help really kind of provide the framework uh, for that discussion. Uh, Today is the first of those messages, and the text is 2 Corinthians 4, verses 13 to 18, and I've entitled this message for an eternal weight of glory. Before I get into today's text, I want to begin my sermon this morning by reading a, a passage of Scripture that I think will help set up our topic for today. We actually read this passage for our call to worship this morning. It's 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 15. And in it, the Apostle Paul says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You are redeemed for a purpose, Christian. Jesus came to earth as a man. He lived a perfect life. He suffered, bled, and died on the cross for your sins for a purpose. And that purpose was not so that you could live happy, comfortable, and content lives right now here in this life. And believe it or not, it was not even simply so that you could live happy, comfortable, and content lives later on in eternity, though that's certainly part of the reason too. In fact, the reason why Jesus died for you actually has very little to do with you whatsoever. It certainly includes you. But it's not necessarily for you. At least not as much as what you're probably prone to think it is. Jesus died for all. Why? Paul explains it right here in verse 15. He says that Jesus died. That those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is why Jesus died for sinners. He died for sinners not so that they could live for themselves, but so that they might live for him who suffered, bled, and died for their sins. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. He says that this is the purpose of our salvation. Jesus died for you so that you might live for him. And just to be clear, Paul doesn't make this declaration in some kind of isolated, off-handed remark either. He says, on a few, he says this on a few different occasions as well. For example, in Titus 2, uh, verse 14, Paul says, quote, that Jesus gave Himself, he says, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. So, Jesus gave Himself for us. Why? Again, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus died to make us righteous. He died to make us holy. He died, listen, He died not just for our justification, but for our sanctification as well. He died for our obedience. You're probably all familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, 9. After all, there's probably 
no passage in Scripture that is any clearer in declaring that we are all saved by grace alone, through faith alone. There Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So clearly there's no works involved in our justification. Those verses make it clear that salvation is utterly of grace. But did you know that verse 10 continues? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we aren't saved by our good works, but you are saved for good works, Paul explains. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus died for you so that you might live for Him? That's actually what the term redemption implies. That The Bible uses several different terms to explain what happened for us at the cross. And one of these terms is redemption. Do you know what it means to redeem something? We can use that word a few different ways today, but biblically, this term redemption means something closer to, to, to free by paying a ransom. And it was often used in reference to slavery. When a slave's freedom was purchased, they were redeemed. There's a sense in which at the cross, Jesus purchased you. He bought you. You were a sinner enslaved to your sin. You were bound to the worship of idols. And with His blood, He purchased you. He redeemed you. He took you out of the ownership of that slave master. He freed you. And He did this not so that you could go back and serve yourself, which is, after all, what you did when you were enslaved in your sinful desires. No, Jesus redeemed you so that with your freedom, you could serve and worship Him. Just as God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt and then gave them His law so that with their freedom from slavery, they might serve and worship Him, so also has God redeemed you. This is really what Israel becomes a a picture of for the Christian. What God has done at a macro level with them, He does for every single believer at a micro level as well. Again, you were bought with a price, Christian, and that was not so that you could use your newfound freedom to go back and serve your old slave master once again. No, you were bought in the words of Paul that, that you might no longer live for yourself, but for Him who for your sake died and was raised. And if we stop and reflect on the implications of what that means, if we stop and ask ourselves, what does it mean to live for Jesus? And we think about that for very long. It eventually brings us around to the Great Commission. You've probably heard me say this several times before, but I think it bears repeating, so I'll say it again. What is the purpose of the church? It is worship. Jesus died to sanctify a people for himself, zealous for good works. Jesus died to set aside a people who would serve him. That is the purpose of the church. That is the purpose of every single Christian, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what is our present mission? In other words, how are we to serve God? First and foremost, it is through the Great Commission. It is through the making of disciples who worship Jesus by doing everything that Jesus commanded us. In other words, while the purpose of your life is to serve and worship God, the particular way that you are to express this worship in this life is through the advancement of the gospel. 
This is why the church is left here on this planet. This is why Jesus tarries. God delays His judgment because, 2 Peter 3, He wishes all to come to repentance and He leaves His church here as a gospel witness until the return of Jesus Christ. So what is the purpose of your life? Quite simply, it is to advance the gospel of Christ. It isn't to make a name for yourself. It isn't to make money. And it isn't to start a family and raise kids. In fact, contrary to what our culture will tell you, it isn't even simply to make the most out of life by having the greatest number of experiences and have the most amount of fun before you die. It is to advance the gospel of Christ. You have all been redeemed out of your sins so that you might serve Christ, and Christ has left you on this planet so that you can serve Him as witnesses of His gospel. This is the purpose of your life. You are all ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, imploring the world on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. But at the same time, we all struggle with this, do we not? It's one thing to know what we are and to know what we've been called to do. But it's another to go ahead and do it, right? And this mission that Christ has sent us on, this is no easy mission. As Jesus has shown His disciples on a number of different occasions in our time in Matthew, this message is not going to be received with open arms. There are some, make no mistake, there are some who by the power of the Holy Spirit will hear this message of good news and rejoice. But most, and Jesus has made this very clear throughout Matthew, most, most will not accept this message. They're blind to the truth. And they're unable to accept it. They will either ignore the truth in the best case scenario, perhaps even respond in confusion to this message that you're sharing with them that's so out of sync with their values. Or in the worst case scenario, they'll respond with hostility. This is the problem with going out to proclaim the message of salvation to sinners. Sinners sin, right? Transgressors transgress. Now, to be clear, most do not fit the worst-case scenario. Most will only ignore what you have to say. Maybe push back as they try to understand what you're saying and, and, and figure out why you believe what you do, and they're entitled, entitled to do that. But, but some will become hostile. They'll mock. They'll scorn. And this can be enough to put a bitter taste in the mouth of anyone who wants to proclaim Christ. It's enough to make most Christians hesitate and ask themselves, do I really want to try to do that again? Again, next week we'll meet after church to discuss how we can work together uh, to grow in our gospel witness. And I, and I thought that before we got there, it'd be good to take a Sunday to prime us for that discussion by reminding you that this is your purpose in Christ, that this is not optional, that we all need to labor in the advancement of the gospel. But as I thought about this, I realized that I don't know if it's, so much that we need to, if that's so much that we need to be thinking about to prepare for this discussion, uh, that we, you know, that this is your purpose, this is what you've been called to do, if that's what we really need to be thinking about, as much as we need to think about the motivation that drives our evangelistic efforts. After all, if you're anything like me, and the scripture tells me that you probably are, if you're anything like me, then when it comes to evangelism, the problem isn't really so much with the desire to share Christ. 
I would trust that everyone in this room wants to share Christ. The problem, though, is the obstacles. There's this tension. I, I, I want to share Christ, but I don't want to hurt. I don't want to experience the suffering that comes with proclaiming Christ. That's really the issue, if we're honest with ourselves, right? It's not that I don't know that I should proclaim Jesus. It's the doing of what I know that's the problem. The struggle is with the motivation to do what we know to be hard, right? So I thought what we would do this morning is explore the motivations of the evangelist. And we're going to do that by hearing from one of the greatest evangelists who ever lived explain why he evangelized in spite of the suffering that he endured for those efforts. And my hope is that this will prepare us for next week's discussion, that it will kind of whet our appetites for this work by encouraging us to rise to this overwhelmingly incredible and at the same time incredibly overwhelming task. The passage once again is 2 Corinthians 4, verses 13 to 18. And the, apostle, the evangelist, of course, is the Apostle Paul. In this epistle, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and as Paul writes, he's under attack. He's under attack from a church that he planted. There appears to be a a man or maybe even a group of people who are attempting to discredit him to the Corinthians. If you read this letter very closely, you can see that they're accusing Paul of a few different things, the chief of which seems to be extortion. Paul is attempting to collect money to send his aid to to brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are suffering financially. And and these accusers seem to be implying that Paul is attempting to extort the church for his own personal gain. By the time Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians, they appear to have resisted these efforts to discredit him, and Paul continues to explain his ministry as he prepares to receive this gift. Point being, in this epistle, you get to see a pretty raw picture of the internal motivations of the preeminent evangelist among the apostles. Here is Paul suffering one of the most hurtful attacks that a man like him could ever experience. He's being accused of abuse from a church that he sacrificed to give birth to. I mean, he's essentially being accused of spiritual child abuse from a church that he loves dearly. And as Paul defends his ministry by explaining just how crazy it is to think that money is what drives his ministry, he explains what it is that does motivate him. So there's really no better place that we can go if we want to learn how to persevere for the sake of the gospel than right here. Because right here, we get to crawl into the mind of one of the greatest evangelists who ever lived as he explains what made him keep going as he suffered over and over again for the sake of Christ. And it's hard to capture the whole heart of Paul's thinking on this matter with just one passage, but if we had to pick just one passage to serve as kind of a snapshot into Paul's heart, I think there's probably no better place that we can go to than right here, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. There, Paul says this, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is not for your sake, so that as or sorry, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away; our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light 
momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What motivated Paul to persevere in his evangelistic efforts in spite of the opposition that he faced? I think we can see five sort of interwoven motivations uh, laid out in this passage. These are five reasons why you and I should be faithful to proclaim Christ. And as I think you'll see, though there are five motivations, they're all kind of connected. They're all uh, kind of interrelated. It may be helpful to think of these five motivations as broken down into two different categories. The first three have to do with the goodness of evangelism. We'll see this in verses 13 to 15. There Paul explains that he proclaimed the gospel because it was a worthwhile endeavor. Then the last two motivations have to do with the struggle of of evangelism. We see this in verses 16 to 18. There Paul explains how he found strength to persevere in his ministry in spite of the hardships he faced. So there's a bit of a shift in these verses. Maybe keep that in mind as we go. So what motivated Paul to evangelize? The first motivation is this. Number one, confidence in God's grace. Confidence in God's grace. Paul persevered in evangelism because he was confident in the grace of God. We see this in verses 13 to 14. Paul says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I, sp- uh, and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. If you look here, there's two different halves Uh, to this statement in verses 13 and 14. In the first half, Paul quotes this statement from Psalm 116.10, where the psalmist says something to the effect of, I believed, therefore I spoke. Saying that because he, Paul, shares the same spirit of faith, he also speaks. And then in the second half, Paul attaches this kind of a verbial clause which explains that as he speaks, he knows that God will raise both him and the Corinthians from the dead. This clause thus serves as a a further explanation of verse 13. Paul speaks because he shares the spirit of the psalmist in Psalm 116. And in what way does Paul share this spirit? He spells it out in verse 14. Paul is like the psalmist as expressed through his confidence that God will raise both he and the Corinthians from the dead. And this is why Paul speaks. He knows that God will do this. God will raise them from the dead. So he speaks. Now the meaning of what Paul is driving at here hinges on the meaning of this quote from Psalm 116. Paul speaks because he shares the spirit of the psalmist who wrote those words. So if we want to know what kind of a spirit that Paul has, this spirit that causes him to speak, then we have to know what kind of a spirit the psalmist had when he wrote those words. So if you would, please flip over in your Bibles to Psalm 116 for a moment. What is Psalm 116 about? And what does the psalmist mean when he says, I believed and so I spoke? Answering that question should give us some insight into what Paul means when he says that he shared this spirit and so he also spoke. And this is what we see. Psalm 116 verses 1 to 9 says this. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffer distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. 
Gracious is the Lord and righteous our God. And, and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So what is Psalm 116 about? It's a psalm of deliverance. The psalmist was near death, and then he called on the name of the Lord, and God delivered him. And so what does it mean in the very, when in the very next word, verse he says, I believed and so I spoke, or as it says here in the ESV, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. The idea is basically the same, no matter which way you translate it. The psalmist has confidence in God's power to deliver, and so he went to the Lord in prayer, and he told him, I am greatly afflicted. He took his affliction to God in prayer, even when he was afflicted. He had confidence in God, and so he spoke, telling the Lord, I am greatly afflicted. That's the meaning of the psalmist when he says, I believed, and so I spoke. He had confidence in God's grace, God's power to deliver him, and so he went to the Lord in prayer. Now, going back to 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that he shares this, shares this spirit. And so he also spoke, knowing that God would raise both he and the Corinthians from the dead. And when we read that statement in that context, it shows us that Paul is saying that he speaks even when he is afflicted, because he is confident that God will deliver him through his resurrection from the dead. Paul speaks in the face of opposition to his message because he's confident that in spite of all the harm that mankind can bring to him, he will yet live. It doesn't matter what people can do to Paul, they can never truly harm him in the ultimate sense because at the end of it all, Jesus is going to raise him again to eternal life. It's kind of like when Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and in hell. That's Paul's attitude in this verse as well. So nothing and no one can really destroy him, even when he speaks. Really, he knows that he has nothing to lose by speaking. And so he speaks. Now that's all well and good, but what about the suffering that Paul endures in the meantime? Right? So Paul knows that God will deliver him one day. That still doesn't really tell us why Paul speaks. I mean, so sure, Paul has nothing to lose when he speaks. That much is made clear by this statement in verses 13 and 14. But at the same time, what does he really have to gain by speaking? That's what Paul will explain for us through the rest of this passage. And we're going to continue with the next two motivations, which are still related to this idea of the goodness of evangelism. And Paul evangelized because he believed it was a worthwhile endeavor. And he explains why it was worthwhile through these next two motivations in the passage. What are these motivations? The second motivation is this, love for the church. Paul was motivated to proclaim Christ because of his love for the Corinthians. And motivation number three, the glory of God. Paul proclaimed the gospel because he understood that as he spoke, God was glorified. He says, verse 15, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. 
Now, I mentioned these motivations together because they're interrelated. And, and probably the best way to understand is how they're interrelated is by beginning with Paul's third motivation, which is the glory of God, and then working our way back. In the second half of verse 15, Paul says that he endures for the sake of the gospel, trusting that God will deliver him, quote, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. He understood, as we should all understand, that evangelism evangelism was primarily an expression of worship. Paul evangelized and made disciples of Jesus Christ, meaning as he proclaimed Christ and called unbelievers to repentance and faith, he did that so that they too might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised, right? As he did that, he was increasing the praise of God. Again, Jesus didn't die only to save us from the penalty of our sins. He died so that being saved from the penalty of our sins, we might be reconciled to God to serve Him in worship forever and ever. That's the purpose of our salvation. And this means that evangelism is not just about saving people from hell. It's about creating worshipers of God. I mean, that's what Jesus actually told His disciples to go out and do in the Great Commission, right? He told them not just to proclaim the gospel, but to make disciples, actually. Quote, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's what's happening in the Great Commission. If Christians are doing this mission right, then they aren't just proclaiming the message of forgiveness, but they're actually creating disciples of Jesus who are doing all that Jesus commanded them. And this means that the Great Commission is actually about creating worshipers. Paul understood that. He understood that as he proclaimed Christ crucified, it brought people to repentance as they saw the goodness, wisdom, power, and love of God on display. It created worshipers who repented of their sins and trusted in Christ on account of the love that Christ displayed towards them. And so Paul evangelized. Why? I think on one hand we can say that he did this simply because he loved God. Paul saw the sacrifice that Christ suffered for him, and in thanksgiving to God, he preached the gospel so that Christ could be magnified all the more through the repentance of more and more sinners. That's one reason why Paul would say his suffering was a worthwhile endeavor, and that's certainly one way we could read this verse. But I don't know that that's actually what he's trying to communicate here. I think that once we dig into this verse, what we find is that it's not just the glory of God that drives Paul's evangelistic efforts, but actually the effect that glory has on the Corinthians. Again, Paul begins verse 15 by saying, for it is all for your sake. He says, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. In other words, Paul says the reason that he proclaims the gospel to unbelievers, the reason why he keeps on going as a missionary to proclaim Christ, even though he was getting beat up for it over and over again, was for the sake of the Corinthians. Paul says, I do this for you. And and the implication is that this advancement of the gospel to the glory of God was actually for the Corinthians' benefit. Paul told unbelievers about Jesus because he understood that as he did so, it would benefit this Corinthian church that he loved. So this is one of the reasons why Paul proclaimed 
the gospel. He, he did so as an expression of his love, not just for God, but for his church as well. How does this work? How does, how does Paul's ministry, his missionary efforts, how does this benefit the Corinthians? I mean, that seems like an odd concept. Doesn't it? I, I think we can understand how the proclamation of the gospel is an expression of love for sinners. That's easy to understand. To tell sinners how they can be saved from the wrath of God, that's obviously an act of love for them. We all recognize that, that if we love the world, then we must tell them about Jesus. But the church? How is the proclamation of the gospel, and again, keep in mind, the proclamation of the gospel not to the church, but to other people, how is that a benefit to the church? I doubt very many Christians would include this on their list of reasons to preach the gospel, but that's what Paul is saying here. He preached the gospel for the sake of the church. How does this work? A verse to help me understand this concept is found just a few chapters later in 2 Corinthians 9. If you would, kind of flip over there. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10. Once again, Paul writes this letter as he prepares to collect a a gift from the Corinthians that he's about to send to Jerusalem. And in the portion of the letter that deals more directly with this gift that he's going to collect, Paul says this, starting in verse 10. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us, Now look at the terminology here, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing, listen again here, in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution to them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. What's Paul saying here? He's, He's encouraging the Corinthians for their gift. And the way he's encouraging them is by telling them that as this gift is received in Jerusalem, it's going to overflow in many thanksgivings to God. Like the brothers in Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem will see how God's grace has extended to the Gentiles through their faith, which is then manifested by these Gentiles supplying their need. They're going to see the awesome grace and wisdom of God in display of that, and then they were going to rejoice over God as a result of it. So what do we learn from this? We learn that the Corinthians desire to see God glorified as well. They are believers, which means they want to see God's glory magnified. That's, how Paul, that's why Paul's encouraging them with this. Look, as I go and I take this, God's going to be glorified. They want that too. So how would Paul's preaching of the gospel serve the Corinthians? It would serve them by magnifying the glory of God. That's one way that Paul's preaching to unbelievers benefited the church. That's something you should keep in mind, by the way. As you proclaim Christ... And then as unbelievers come to Christ, the rest of the church is encouraged. And that's one reason why you should proclaim Christ. But there's another benefit that this provides as well. If you're back here, or if you're still here in chapter 9, if you look here, Paul says in verse 11 that this thanksgiving to God will take place through us. 
In other words, it's not the Corinthians' generosity alone that's producing thanksgiving to God, but it's their generosity working in conjunction with Paul's ministry. Paul sees this as a cooperative effort, and this helps us understand further how, as Paul preached the gospel, he did so for the sake of the church. If you would, flip over to chapter 1. There's another statement in chapter 1 that helps explain what Paul's saying here in chapter 4. Do you remember how Paul said he believed, and so he spoke? And he based that off of this gracious deliverance that God promised in Psalm 116. Well, keep that in mind, and then look at what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 7-11. through 11. He says, Our hope is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. What do you see here? You see the same confidence in God that Paul expresses in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, he says, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us again. I mean, this is really just so much the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 116, right? And, and Paul says, On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Now look at verse 11. Paul says, You also must help us by prayer. Why? Why? So that many, and again, look at the language here, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. Can you see what's happening here? Paul is he's telling the Corinthians, look, God is going to keep on delivering us. We have confidence in that. And so you need to pray for us. You need to pray for our deliverance. And why? Well, so that as the gospel continues to advance through Paul's ministry, as God's grace continues to extend to more and more people through this deliverance from peril, those who receive this gospel might not only give thanks for Paul, but for the Corinthians as well, who sustained Paul in his ministry. This is really so very important, especially especially as we get to our message next week. So please don't miss what's going on here. Paul sees his ministry not as his ministry, but their ministry. Paul isn't working solo. He's advancing the gospel with the help of the Corinthians as expressed here in their prayers. Again, this is important. We're going to talk about this at length next week. The Great Commission is not a solo project. Every Christian is individually responsible to be actively engaged in the work of evangelism. This is true. Each each Christian is individually responsible to be engaged in the work of evangelism. But at the same time, this is not to say that this is something they do alone. This is a group effort. Even Paul, one of the greatest evangelists of all time, he knew this and he relied on the Corinthians and their prayers to sustain him in times of difficulty and hardship. So then, how would the Corinthians benefit from Paul's preaching of the gospel? They would benefit because as partners in Paul's ministry, they would share in his reward. 
In just a moment, we're going to hear how Paul was motivated by eternity. Paul worked for an eternal reward. Well, listen, Paul understood that as he labored for that eternal reward, he wasn't going to be the only one that benefited. The Corinthians, actually, who were partners with Paul in his ministry, not only in the money that they sent with Paul on on this journey to Jerusalem, but also through the prayers that they offered up for him as he faced and then was delivered from affliction over and over again, they also got to share in the fruit of his ministry. Paul was out there on the trenches. He was engaging in spiritual conflict daily for the advancement of God's kingdom, but he did so with the strength supplied by the Corinthians to his ministry. And this meant that they would get a share in his reward. Again, Paul didn't see his mission as an individual ministry. It was a group effort. And since it was a group effort, it also meant there would be a group reward. That motivated Paul to work harder, to endure more for the sake of the gospel. He saw the afflictions that he faced, and yet he spoke. And why did he speak? He spoke not only because he was confident in God's power to deliver him, but also because he understood that as he was delivered, and as the glory of God was then magnified through his ministry, the benefit of that labor would then come back to the Corinthians, who partnered with him for the sake of the gospel, and would therefore share in his reward. Does that make sense? If it does, then understand that this should be a major motivation for you and your struggle for the gospel. Again, next week I'll explain how this mission is a team effort and how that concept should affect the way we go about this. Suffice to say for now that if we as a church are thinking about evangelism rightly, then we're working on this together, not just as individuals. And what this means is that if we pull that off, then it's not just you that that you will benefit from your evangelistic efforts, but everyone else here in this room will as well. We all will share in the fruit of your reward. Your labor will bless all of us. So why should you evangelize? Should you do it as an expression of worship? Yes. Should you do it as an act of love for a lost and dying world? Certainly. But do it also for the church. Do you love Christ? And in loving Christ, do you love His body? If the answer to that question is yes, then proclaim the gospel. This is one way that you can show love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, by sharing with them. Think about this. You can share with your brothers and sisters in Christ an eternal gift, which is the reward that they will receive on behalf of your gospel labors. So I could go on about this, and I really wish I could because this is a big concept. You, you express your love for the church in part through your commitment to advance the gospel. That's kind of hard to grasp, I think, but it's important to grasp because that should motivate you at a new level to proclaim Jesus. I mean, sometimes it's hard to, uh, to love unbelievers. When they reject us, it's hard to be motivated to keep pressing on to share Christ with them. Like when they're mad at you, you, you go, why am I going to keep doing this? But when we understand that as we press on, we're not just loving them, but our brothers and sisters who who don't reject us, but actually love us with Christ-like love, that's encouraging. That keeps us going. I mean, when I understand that the suffering I endure for the sake of Christ brings some eternal benefit, not just to the people I proclaim to, but to you, that makes that much more bearable. 
It's easy to love you. You're the body of Christ. So when we see suffering in this light, it makes it more tolerable. This concept should motivate us in that way, right? So again, I wish we could spend more time here, but I actually don't think we're at the best part of this passage yet. And again, you can see there's so much going on here. The best part comes with the next two motivations, which occurs in verses 16 to 18. So let's press on. We can now see the benefit of evangelism. It wasn't just that Paul didn't have anything to lose, but he also had much to gain in sharing the gospel. The the Corinthians would would receive this tremendous benefit as a result of his commitment to the gospel. Now in verse 16, Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Paul says in light of this, we don't become discouraged. Even in the face of affliction, we are not disheartened. Why not? We need to understand the answer to that question, right? Again, I would venture the problem with most of us isn't that we don't see the benefit of evangelism, it's that we also see the cost of it as well. We're rejected, we grow discouraged, and so we don't proclaim Christ. Here Paul says that he not only sees the benefit, but he actually does not lose heart as well. He's not overcome by discouragement. Why not? How could Paul cope with the hostility that he faced in his ministry? If we're going to overcome our fears and advance the name of Christ, we have to understand this. So what does Paul say? Why does he not lose heart? We see this in verses 16 to 18. We're shifting now from the goodness of evangelism to the struggle of evangelism. And Paul says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary Light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Here Paul gives two more motivations that drove his outreach. And once again, these motivations are interrelated. So let's look at the two of them together as well. The fourth motivation is this, present sanctification. Paul preached the gospel because as he preached, he was sanctified from the inside out. And motivation number five, eternal reward. Paul preached the gospel because he lived in light of the eternal benefit he would receive from that effort. Once again, I think it's, in order to grasp these two concepts, it's really, you really have to grasp the second first uh, to help get that. Because the first concept, Paul's present sanctification, that's explained by the second one, his eternal reward. So let's start with the second of these two ideas and then work our way back to the first one. The fifth motivation, Paul's anticipation of an eternal reward, this starts in verse 17 and continues through verse 18. Paul says that, quote, this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory in verse 17. Then in verse 18, he explains that he is looking to this eternal unseen reward rather than the temporal afflictions that he is presently experiencing. If you want to understand what Paul means by this statement, you don't have to go too far. Just a few verses later, he says in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, he says, For whether we are at home, and in context, home is heaven. He says, Whether we are at home or away, that's here on earth, we make it our aim to please him. Why? Why did Paul make it his aim to please Christ? Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. Do you realize that one day you will be judged by Christ? 
Even if you're a believer, even believers will be judged by Christ. But wait a minute, isn't salvation by grace through faith and not by works? Yes, yes, salvation is by grace through faith. Paul knew this, and he preached this as much as anyone. But it's not salvation that Paul's talking about here. We're all reconciled to God on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone, but at the same time, Jesus is going to dole out rewards to his disciples based on their faithfulness to serve him in the flesh. Listen, the things that you do right now are going to have an eternal impact in heaven. Paul understood this, and so he labored for the gospel, realizing that as he suffered for the sake of Christ, he was storing up for himself treasure in heaven. This is what encouraged him to endure affliction. And again, just so you know, Paul speaks of this way often. This this appears to be one of his major motivations. If I could put it this way, he was driven to faithfulness by an ambition for eternal things. For example, in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul explained that he was incredibly careful in the way he established the Corinthian church because he was mindful of this reward, saying in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. If you, again, if you want to, go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. Again, Paul was mindful of the way that he preached Christ because of this reward. Verse 10, he says, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Again, not salvation. He says, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul wanted an eternal reward. So he was careful that he didn't just establish a church, but a true church. He knew that false conversions would bring him no reward whatsoever. So he labored to make sure that each stone that was laid in the Corinthian church was a genuine one. So at the day of judgment, he would be judged accordingly and received an eternal reward. It was because Paul labored in this way that as he neared death, he could tell his disciple Timothy, quote, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. This is how Paul lived. His mind was firmly fixed on eternity. And he thought this way, by the way, just so you know, he thought this way because Jesus himself encouraged his disciples to think this way. To think in terms of their eternal reward. And and he instructed them on this reward. He taught them that the greatness of this reward would dwarf any sort of suffering that they experience now by comparison. For example, when Peter asked Jesus what he and the disciples would gain for the sake of what they lost to follow him. Jesus said to Peter, Matthew 19, verses 28 to 29. He says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My name's sake 
will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Paul acted on this promise. And so as he compared the greatness of that reward with the temporary nature of his present suffering, do you know how he came out? He called his suffering momentary light affliction. Momentary light affliction. Paul, who just a few chapters later in this epistle will recall how he was whipped with 39 lashes five times, who was beaten with rod three times, who was stoned, who was shipwrecked three times, spent a night and a day adrift at sea, a man who went hungry and slept in the cold, a man who was imprisoned, a man who would eventually even die as a martyr for his faith. He said that was just momentary light affliction. And of course, none of us would say that any of that qualifies as light affliction. Especially in light of the type of suffering that we endure for the sake of the gospel, right? But when Paul looked at the outcome of all that suffering, in terms of all that awaited for him at the end of it all, he saw that the reward was so much greater, that it was of such exceedingly greater worth, that he considered all of it but light affliction by comparison. Essentially, Paul said, all of this is just a very small price to pay for what I'll receive at the end of it all. This is why Paul could write to the Philippians and say, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord as he sat in prison. He knew that all that he would gain through Christ was of so much greater worth that he gave up all of that, and that he could even say in this moment, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, dung in the Greek. He said that he, that he lost, what he lost was actually of so little worth in comparison to Christ that he could actually say that it was all meaningless. In his eyes, his suffering really cost him next to nothing. It was a very small price to pay. And he was right. The suffering we pay now is small and light in comparison to what awaits us in eternity. I mean, we're so often consumed with what occupies us here and now, but do you understand that once you've lived with Jesus for a million years, once you've lived with Him for a million years, the 60 or 70 or 80 years that you lived here are going to be but a faint kind of memory. I mean, really, there's almost a sense in in which we can say that that life is more real than this one because it will be far more permanent. Its effects will last longer. And yet we think, I cannot possibly endure the discomfort of what this person is going to think of me when I talk to them about Jesus. Paul didn't think this way. Not at all. Every moment he suffered, do you know what he saw? Every moment he suffered, he saw greater reward and greater reward. And again, not only for him, not only for him, but for his brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And do you know what this did to Paul? We see the answer, verse 16. Again, this verse begins by saying, so we do not lose heart. He didn't grow discouraged, actually far from it. Look at the rest of the verse. He says, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul says, even though my physical body grows weaker through all this suffering, my soul, it does not. The outer man decays, but the inner man is thriving. The inner man is getting stronger. Far from getting discouraged, Paul's actually getting stronger and more committed to proclaim the name of Jesus. 
Why? How does that suffering strengthen Paul? Well, because of what we just saw in verses 17 to 18. Again, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's inner person was being renewed because he, as, he, as he looked to what was eternal and unseen, he could foresee an eternal weight of glory that dwarfed his present suffering. If I could put it this way, as Paul suffered, what he saw was not affliction but the reward at the end of it all. And as this happened, his, as his body decayed, his soul grew stronger. As he began to see what was awaiting him in heaven as a result of his suffering, he became more eager for heaven and more eager for heaven. And this in turn fueled his evangelistic zeal. With each day spent in prison, With every blow that struck him, heaven only became nearer and brighter in Paul's eyes. And so with every ounce of suffering that he drank in, he found himself growing stronger in his faith. He actually became more and more determined to proclaim Christ. So no, he did not lose heart. His inner man was being renewed daily through his affliction. This is the last of Paul's motivations from this passage, his present sanctification. As Paul proclaimed the gospel, he suffered. And as he suffered, his spiritual senses, so to speak, those became sharper. Heaven became more real. And the reward reward that would be enjoyed there, not only for himself, but for the Corinthians too, that reward became greater and greater. And this fueled Paul's zeal to proclaim the gospel as he longed for Christ more and more. And it's these last two motivations and their relationship with each other that I think are really so important for us to grasp if we're going to grow in faithfulness to reach the loss. You know, I can look at my life and I'm 33 years old and even at 33, I feel like so much of my life has already passed me by. And I think in a few more years, I'm going to stand before Jesus. And when that happens, will I be content with what I've done? Will I be satisfied with how I have exercised stewardship over this life that Christ has given me? I mean, He brought me to faith early. I've had years to be used in fruitful service to His mission, advancing His kingdom for the glory of His name. What will I have to show for it then? I don't know about you, but when I ask this question, that motivates me. I don't want to waste this life that He's given me. I have one life in this fallen flesh to use for the advancement of the kingdom. And when it's all over, the only thing that will really, truly matter is, was the kingdom advanced? Was I faithful to proclaim His gospel? Well, I've used my life well. Well, I've made the most of it. I mean, the truth is, I don't even know how many days I have left. Am I directing each day for the advancement of His kingdom, or am I letting them casually slip by, thinking that I'll have time to be truly faithful later on? I can't afford to do that. You can't afford to do that. We don't know how much time we have left, and I don't think we want to waste the time we've been given. But then as I think to myself, these things, I think, but evangelism is so hard. Just as I say to myself, I want to do this, I see the strength of the Canaanites that inhabit the land. And then I think to myself, I can't do this. I can't go up, Lord. I won't go up. 
So how do I muster the strength to do this thing that I know is good, that I want to do? Paul shows me, he shows you right here. You do it. You don't wait until you have this burst of courage that causes you to run shouting out to the battle lines. You actually go weak. You go discouraged. And then as you go, and as you fight for the kingdom with the Lord by your side, the zeal for this work then grows. It's then, as you gain success, as you see the gospel progress, and as you see heaven begin to rise higher and higher on the horizon, it is only then that the afflictions, listen, they won't go away. The afflictions aren't going to go away. But they will begin to seem light and momentary by comparison. You understand, I think one of the greatest problems that the church faces today is that we do not think that we should suffer for Christ. Our faith, we think, should not make us uncomfortable. And so because evangelism does this, and it will do this, because it does this, we either don't do it at all, or we try to figure out all the ways that we can make it as uncomfortable as possible, which really, in the end, only ends up covering up the gospel. And this thought that that we shouldn't be uncomfortable, this isn't true. This isn't true at all. Nowhere in the New Testament, not from Paul, not from Peter, not from John, not from Jesus himself, do you find any statement saying that your faith is going to be painless. Instead, you have Jesus telling his disciples, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You have Paul saying, all, all, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Our faith includes suffering. There's no avoiding it. Maturity in Christ means proclaiming the gospel, and proclaiming the gospel means rejection. There's no getting around it. If you want to grow in Christ, if you want to serve Him, then you must suffer. So the pain isn't going away. I'm not going to stand up here and try to encourage you by telling you that if you just do the mission in the right way, then it'll be painless. That would be a lie. The pain isn't going away. But it can get easier. There is no painless way to proclaim Christ. Affliction, suffering, this will happen. But while the affliction isn't going to go away, you can be strengthened in your inner self day by day to the point that, like Paul, you can look at even the most severe affliction and say, this is but momentary and light. How do you get there? You do it. Like the Nike slogan says, just do it. Get active in the work. And then the strength, the spiritual strength that makes that affliction light, that will come later. So are you eager for the riches of heaven? Do you, do, you make the mo- do you want to make the most out of this life that God has given you? Do you even want to richly bless your brothers and sisters in Christ? Then begin by spreading the gospel. This is the mission that Christ has called you to. This is really the ultimate sign of your maturity in Christ. The degree to which you are faithful to commit yourself to this mission. And if you hesitate to do this, if you, if you kind of pause to do that because you know how difficult this is going to be, then know that the way through that fear is by getting active. You can't avoid the pain. You have to go through it. But at the same time, know that as you go through it, it will get easier. Heaven will become brighter. Christ will become more appealing. Your joy in God and your mission will grow day by day.
So get to it. Set your hand to the plow and do so (laughs) anticipating the joy that you're going to feel when you hear your Savior say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Let's pray.